And if you don't have a good definition for providence, we'll have that here in just a minute. But uh, it's hard to see God's hand when things are difficult in life, when we're in pain, when we're hurting emotionally or physically, or when people we love just seem to be getting no breaks in life, right? It's hard to see God's plan when someone loses a job. It's hard to see God's plan when someone gets a cancer diagnosis or when someone suddenly dies. Just Friday morning, we got a phone call that Amy's uncle had passed away from a, from a heart attack that was completely unexpected. Death, trouble, problems, pain, all of these things we all deal with at some time in our life. And we ask that question, where is God's providence in our pain? C.S. Lewis wrote a book one time called A Grief Observed, and in it he draws this perfect picture of sometimes it seems like our prayers just aren't being heard. Where is God in this difficulty? And he compares it to a man who's standing outside of a palace trying to talk to the king as he's trying to pray to the king of kings, only to have the big wooden door slammed in his face and the bolt latch right in his face. And to hear that sound and know that right now, I'm not going to get any answers. Years ago, uh, when Amy and I had, uh, after we'd been married for a couple of years, we began to to think about, okay, let's, let's have children. Let's, let's start our family and grow. And so we were really excited about that. And, and we went through uh, several years of dealing with infertility. And it was really, really hard on us. Some of you in the room have probably been in a similar situation. And when we were going through this, of course, all of our friends that we graduated high school with and now we'd gotten out of college were all starting their families. And so they were having babies and it was this weird emotion of being really thrilled for them. But at the same time, there was this part of us that couldn't understand why we couldn't have the same thing. It almost felt like it, it, there was a guilty feeling that would come over us because we, we wanted children so bad. They're having children and it was hard to even be rejoicing for them. And sometimes after there was rejoicing for them, there might be tears in the next room. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There was just real pain that we were going through and wondering, what is God up to? You know, we tried all the fertility medicines, nothing worked. Prayers, prayers from God's people, people laying hands on us, and yet that big wooden door was slammed shut and the bolt locked in place. We just didn't know what to do. Where was God? Trying to see him when it felt like he was just silent. In our passage of scripture today, King Xerxes works to replace the old queen Vashti. His officers search the land of Persia to find for him a woman who will replace the queen. The unseen God works to ensure that his own, namely Esther, be the one who finds favor in the king's eyes. Again, the unseen God works faithfully. Although we can't see it at first, how any of it will turn out for good. So even though God may seem far away or you wonder where he is in a difficult situation, he is always there at work providentially. I'll get back to my story in just a little bit. There's a good verse in uh, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
We've got to stay sheltered in God. And I think stories, uh, these historical accounts that we read in the scripture are so helpful for us when we're dealing with these difficulties of trying to hear from God. Because again, the door slams shut, the bolt's in place, but we also know these historical accounts where God has over and over again proven himself to be faithful and true to his people. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology gives a good definition of providence. Now don't worry, this is a little heady when I read it, but I'll break it down into good old boy terms at the very end, okay? But here's the definition of providence. Providence, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purpose. So good old boy terms, here's what that means, okay? There's never a time when God is not on his throne and providentially and faithfully working through all things to bring about good for his people, amen? Romans 8, 28 encapsulates this very good for us. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, Pastor Daniel does this a lot. Say all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we have historical account after historical account. All throughout history, God has proven himself, even though we may not be hearing in the moment, and we need to hear a word from God, that he is working his plan and his purposes will not be thwarted by men. God is good and he is faithful. Our big thought today is this, although Mordecai and Esther can't see any good in their current circumstances, the unseen God is at work to bring all things, just do it again, all things. That's right, all things together for his plan and purposes. Now I wanna tell you, Hollywood has tried to glamorize this story of Esther, okay? If you watch One Night with the King or you might flip on a movie and be like, oh, well this is gonna retell the story of Esther. They glamorize that. But listen, in chapter two that we're gonna read here in just a moment, there is a lot of crazy going on here. Xerxes was famous for being a wackadoo. Like, what happens when you give a lot of power to someone who is an egomaniac and unstable emotionally? That's the story of King Xerxes. And we have tons of historical accounts about what his personality was like and how he acted in certain situations. You don't really need to guess if you know those two things, egomaniac, unstable emotionally. There's going to be problems. This guy was completely unpredictable. So when we get to that crescendo part, you know, when Esther comes before the king, which we all know the story, you got to know that this guy is completely unpredictable. Now, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Esther too and take this apart this morning. Esther chapter two. Sometime later, when King Xerxes' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for a beautiful young woman for the king. 
Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may assemble all the beautiful young women to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young women who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king and he did accordingly. Verse five. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she didn't have a father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, many young women gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's care. Esther was also taken to the place, sorry, the palace, and placed under the care of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor, so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she had received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Verse 10, Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai, Mordecai had ordered her not to. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Xerxes, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning, she would return to the second harem under the supervision of Shagash, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to come into the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's trusted official in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won approval in the sight of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal palace in the 10th month, in the, in the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other young women. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of a king's bounty. When the young women were assembled together for a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still had not revealed her birthplace or her ethnic background as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh Two eunuchs who guarded the king's entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Xerxes. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to the queen, Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. 
When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there are so many truths that we can glean from it and apply to our own lives. We thank you for the story of Esther that even though the situation is difficult, very uncomfortable for a a young Jewish girl, God, you're going to use it. Even though at this point, Mordecai and Esther have no idea what you're doing, you're gonna use it for your glory and that the story would be told from now and into eternity. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Between chapter one and chapter two, what we just read, I think it's helpful to understand again King Xerxes and his personality with a little historical account about what Xerxes was like. He had just returned after four years of being on campaign against the Greeks. What happened is during that time, there are multiple stories that are recorded in Herodotus, the first historian, that talks about Xerxes and what he was like. But one particular account I think is significant as it relates to Esther later. So as he was heading to fight the Greeks and eventually uh, the Battle of 300 in Thermopylae would be fought as well during this time period, right before chapter two, when he comes back and wants to select the queen, he's wintering in a city called Sardis. And while he's in Sardis, there's a guy named Pythias who is a Lydian man who's very rich, who's hosting King Xerxes. And he comes to King Xerxes and, and they're having this fabulous feast that's been put before him and there's all kinds of partying going on. Pythias is the one sponsoring all of this. And he comes to the king and he says, King, listen, I want to give a big gift to the war effort, which really got Xerxes excited. Nobody ever wanted to give to the war effort. And so he said, I want to give you 3,993,000 gold derricks. Xerxes was taken aback by this guy's um, not just his hospitality, but also uh, just this heart to give to the war effort. And so he said, you know what? You keep your money. What I'm gonna do is give you 7 million gold derricks to round out your fortune to 4 million. Well, he was taken aback. Pythias was so thankful for that. And he said, are you sure you don't want this money? And the king said, no, 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 I don't need your money, but thanks for the generosity that you've just offered me. And Pythias said, well, I just have one favor than to ask you, king. You see, he was trying to buy a favor from the king. And the king said, yeah. And he said, just spare my oldest son from fighting in the war effort. I don't want him to go and fight in this war effort. And Xerxes flew into a rage and said, how dare you? When the king himself is marching out to fight in battle, bring your son here brought his son before King Xerxes, who then had the boy cut in two and placed over the gate on either side as his army marched out to go and fight against the Greeks. Would you want to ask Xerxes for, you know, a kingly royal favor? This is the kind of man that we see that has what he, that's what he just did before chapter two. After the historical account of this, of course, he had just lost to the Greeks horribly at Thermopylae. He was embarrassed. And one author says of Xerxes that he was vain, fickle, foolish, and hot-tempered. I just always reminded myself of this when I was trying to remember all the kings in seminary that Xerxes rhymes with Xerxes. 
Our first point today, as we look at verses one through four, is that Queen Vashti is providentially removed from being queen. Providentially, she's removed from being queen. Now, again, uh, you know, people are moral agents. They're doing things, they're acting out uh, volitionally, they're making decisions, but you've got to remember, as they are 100% making volitional decisions, God is also 100% in control. The scriptures teach us that the grass grows because God makes it grow. That when a bird dies, he knows that it dies, amen? Everything that happens is ultimately under his sovereign control. Four years has passed now since Vashti's been deposed. The king is now home from an unsuccessful campaign and he's settling back in. And at this point in the historical account, it doesn't really seem like anything providential is going on, but it already is. Vashti has been removed to make a way for God to do something amazing here that we're gonna see in just a few weeks. Even though many times we can't see God's providence, it is active, moving in everything to bring about God's will and purpose. Watching the providence of God is actually, I thought about this this week. How do I explain this? Watching the providence of God is a little bit like watching grass grow, right? Do you ever just, uh, I mean, I do this now. I, I look in the mirror some mornings. I'm like, how did you get old, right? It just, it was kind of like this slow movement where if you're just looking at it with the naked eye, you can't see grass grow. You need a GoPro, right, to speed things up. And then you're like, oh, yeah. It got from here to here over time, but when we're watching it, we just can't see it. Providence is like that, but God is at work fulfilling his purposes. And you can imagine Israel for 400 years in Egyptian bondage wondering, where's God? Was he there? Of course he was there with his people, right? But it's a little bit like watching grass grow. You just don't know where you're at in the story. But God is at work. When the search begins for the new queen, he had just returned from horrible defeats by the Greeks. His navy had been defeated at Salamis. I think Daniel mentioned that last week. His army was routed at Plataea, and he was embarrassed, embarrassed, embarrassed. We're still telling that story of the Battle of 300. Now, to get his mind off these defeats, he turns his attention to finding a new queen. His commissioners have been appointed in all 127 provinces to bring all the beautiful virgins into the harem at Citadel and Susa so that they could have a great big beauty pageant. We're gonna find the king, the most best looking woman that we can find him. And she's gonna be the next queen. I mean, really, at the end of the day, it wasn't about relationship. Don't watch those Hollywood versions. They will mess your mind up. This is what he wanted. A huge beauty pageant. And in verses five through 11, we learn that one of the girls voluntold to enter this pageant is Esther. Esther is providentially taken. Two verses five through 11 tells us that she was taken. Esther's family was no stranger to difficulty. Mordecai's grandfather had been taken as captive during the Babylonian invasion. Their family was no stranger to like difficulties from the very beginning to where they're at right now. I mean, you can imagine going through the captivity in 597 and 586, the temples destroyed in Jerusalem. All the people that are there are hauled off to Babylon. Now they're in Babylon and a hundred years later, they're conquered by the Persians. And now they're all the way, these Jewish people are all the way in Persia. Things have been difficult. 
In fact, add another layer to that for Esther. We're not told how, but somehow she's a young girl and she's a double orphan. She's lost both parents and she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai. Her life's not been easy. And to make things worse, now she's in this really horrible situation where she is taken to a beauty pageant that she does not want to be in. The account up to this point, it looks like Esther, like any other young Jewish girl, probably has dreams of marrying a faithful Jewish man, even though they're still in Persia. It is interesting in the book, One Night with the King, not the book, but the movie, One Night with the King, here's how they play this first part of the story out is they talk about during this period of time, caravans in Persia that are going back to Jerusalem so that the people can be back where the temple's already been rebuilt. And they talk about how Esther in the movie wants to go back to Jerusalem, which was probably not untrue. But before she could get back to Jerusalem to to see where her grandfathers used to worship the Lord at the temple, she is taken. The Bible says taken. It didn't say she was chosen. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that she was taken. This wasn't like one of those TV shows where she's trying to win the affection of some rich guy with a bunch of other beautiful women. Not what's going on here. She was there against her will. In fact, some translations of the Hebrew say this. She was put into custody. The Hebrew word laka means taken by force. Esther did not want to be here. She wanted to be a faithful Jew, just like Mordecai did. I can't hardly imagine anything worse than one of my daughters being taken in a situation like this. For one of them to be exposed to an environment that we are, as parents, completely opposed to and to trust that God somehow has a plan in this. Would that be difficult? Living with pain through God's providential plan requires us to have the eyes of faith. And you remember something about the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith are never physical. We walk by faith, not by 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The eyes of faith are not physical. We walk by faith, not by sight. There's a huge problem here for Esther. Jews weren't supposed to intermarry with Gentiles, not to mention crazy ones. Amen? The scriptures were clear about that, and Esther and her family knew this, and no doubt would have wanted to have obeyed it. When Ezra heard that the Jews had intermarried the Gentiles during the exile, the scriptures record this. Here's what the priest did. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. Esther is now in this situation where she would sit appalled at what was going on. The Bible teaches polygamy is wrong. From the beginning, she knew what Genesis 1 and 2 taught, that one man was created for one woman, and that was the marriage relationship, and now she's a part of a harem? How can God be at work here? Even though we can't see the future, we've got to remember as believers that God has proven himself over and over again, that he has an ultimate plan and it's always going to end in good. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back one day? Amen. That there will be a general resurrection of the just and the unjust and all of our family members who died in Christ will one day be resurrected and receive a body like Jesus. Do you believe that? In the end, we win. 
God is at work. And even though we may not be able to see it clearly now, we know he's moving us towards his plan. We've seen this in the scriptures, the providing of the sacrificial ram for Isaac, the raising of, up of Moses to lead the people out of Egyptian bondage, the crossing of the Red Sea, the raising up of judges to deliver Israel, and so on and so on and so on. God is at work among his people. Have you seen this in your life? I know I have. Esther 2 tells us that many girls were brought to king, to king's servant Haggai, but we are told specifically that Esther was the one who pleased him and won his favor. You can almost imagine this shy Jewish girl who doesn't want to be found out anyway about her nationality in a foreign land, probably just trying to hide over in the corner. But everywhere she goes, everyone notices her. There's nothing she can do because she can't thwart the plan of God either. There's no hole deep enough to go hide in when God's gonna get something done. We will fulfill his plan and promise. Verse 10 tells us that she, still keeping her nationality a secret and God is already elevating her with an ultimate purpose in mind that of course is still unseen. In verses 12 through 18, we begin to see this plan of God. Esther is providentially crowned the queen. Before a young lady could appear before Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. First, Esther pleased servant Haggai, and now in these verses, we see that she pleases King Xerxes. You remember our definition of providence, that God is directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purpose. So God's purpose, God's ultimate plan was for Esther to become the new queen. It was typical for ladies to try to impress the king as much as possible. Now Esther wasn't like that though. When they appeared before him, they wanted to impress him. But the scriptures tell us about Esther, she asked for nothing. Except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the women advised. The scripture goes on to say, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This is God's providential plan. I'm sure she's kind of hiding out in the corner, but it's not going to work. God is going to do something big in her life. Then she appears before the king. And the scriptures tell us the king loved Esther more than all the women. She's like, oh man. My buddy always says, oh snap, right? She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Can you imagine this young girl, right? From a humble Jewish home that knows her story of exile from Jerusalem and her family. She knows the backgrounds there. She's keeping it a secret. And all of a sudden, she's the queen of Persia. I mean, go there in your mind. This week as I'm thinking about these things, I'm like, how in the world does this happen? She's gotta be feeling like an imposter and also like, Lord, what are you doing? Seems as though by just reading this chapter that the crowning of Esther is the crescendo of this section, but there's a little add-on here at the end. And that's point four. Mordecai is providentially in the right place at the right time. Verses 19 through 23 tell us that he overhears a plot for the murder of the king. Now, I put myself in Mordecai's shoes this week, and I was kind of like, I was thinking to myself, hmm, 
killing of the king, would I somehow be able to get Esther back out of being queen? Maybe I should just let this plot go on. But maybe he's also thinking to himself, well, if the king is killed in the royal quarters, they might also kill the queen. Whatever his motivation, he goes ahead and he reports this incident. Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. And both of these men are hung for their plot of treason and assassination attempt against Xerxes. Now, interestingly enough, just 15 years later, Xerxes would be assassinated in his bedroom. But in this case, Mordecai and Esther save the Persian king. Now, I'm sure they're wondering at this point, wow, maybe that was God's plan for us, is to somehow stabilize this empire that has allowed us to go back and build, rebuild Jerusalem. Maybe that's all that there is to this, and now maybe I won't be queen very long and I can just go home. But God's plan and purpose for them is not over yet, not even close. Now, it's interesting how God works providentially, and at the time, we can't see it. I started by telling you all the story about the pain of infertility, right? And a lot of you in the room kind of know Amy and I's story, but it is interesting to me that um, God's story and his plan for us was to adopt. After several years of not having children, we decided maybe this is the purpose and the plan for us, and and, and, and we don't understand totally, but uh, maybe this is God's plan for us. We know what the scripture says about the orphan and the widow and those kind of things and speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. So, so there's this side of it, but then there's also the kind of just the, the nature side of it where we just want to raise children and love them, right? So we adopt Noah 20 years ago now from Russia. I think I've told this story before, but when we landed in Siberia, we sat on the tarmac for a minute. The pilot came over, the loudspeaker, and he said, folks, it's gonna be a minute. We're frozen to the tarmac. It's like 35 below zero. It's like, what have we done? We bring him home. But then, years later, you begin to see the providence of God in his life, his belief in the gospel, his trust in Jesus, his growing up and being discipled in a Christian home by parents who love him. And you can see not only the providence of God in his life, but also in ours, we get to be parents. And then we started the adoption process again, as I've told many of you, and then bang, 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 three girls in a row. God opens the womb, right? But we had such an awesome experience with adoption and fell in love with it that we had to adopt Nadi from Ethiopia. And he's been a blast. He just turned 11 this last week. So now as you're kind of back here and you're looking at the story, here there was a ton of pain. It didn't make sense. But in God's providence, he kind of closed the loop for us. And we look back now and we're like, yeah, we get it. And we're grateful. Listen, we're grateful we didn't get what we wanted. Amen? Because if we got what we wanted, we wouldn't have Noah or Nati. God had a providential plan in our pain. And again, it wasn't just our pain, it was their pain as well. In fact, the cross for us, the cross for us, we've got to remember that we've got to have a Christocentric view of life. And that's this, that 
There's this difficulty, this pain, this injustice in the world, this hardship, this difficulty that we go through, and that is the cross. But on the other side of the cross, there's always resurrection. We serve a God of resurrection, and he will work all things together for good for those who love him, even though we may not see it right now. It means we're short-sighted many times if we only see the cross and the pain. We've got to remember we serve a God of resurrection. This past week, it was interesting. I don't know if anybody's been keeping up with what's been going on in the island of Maui. Has anybody seen that on the news? The place is burning down. Again, and it may have just happened, you know, coincidentally or accidentally, but I don't think so. My nephew, some of you know him, Dustin Winslow, who finished the fusion program. He's, he's been called to missions, but he's kind of in this interlude period with he and his wife as they're getting ready uh, to go out and be commissioned with the IMB to do international missions. And his family, his whole family moved out to Hawaii this last year on the big island. But interestingly enough, two and a half weeks ago, his construction company, he's a roofer, moved him to the island of Maui. So he's been in Maui since the fires started and have ravaged the island. And there's been a lot of hurt and pain and difficulty, right? And we should pray for those people continuously. But if you talk to Dustin, there's also the hands and feet of Jesus moving on that island like you've never seen before. He went into a cafe and he just opened up his Bible and had a drink there for somebody and just meeting with people, sharing that God is in control, that Jesus loves them, that he has a plan for their life. And in the midst of great suffering and difficulty, right, the providence and plan of God is working out. And as you've heard before, right, beauty will come from the ashes in Maui. We know that. In fact, you may be going through such a difficult time reflecting on something maybe in the past that you cannot make sense of. And I'm here to tell you today, maybe you never will. You might never make sense of it. The loop may never be closed for you. But you must know today that as a historical account of Esther, that God is intricately, personally involved in all things going on in the universe and your situation is not random nor out of his control. And as we consider these things, there's a few verses for us to end with about trusting God. Verses of God's providence that I think are helpful for us. Colossians chapter one, verse 16 says this. In him, speaking of Jesus, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Now think about that. Your life is held together by Jesus. The universe is held together by Jesus. All things are held together. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, says that Christ is upholding the universe by his word of power. The Greek word here for upholding is Pharaoh, and it means to carry or to bear. It is used commonly in the New Testament for carrying something from one place to another. It's the same word used for those guys. You remember the story where they picked up the paralytic and carried him to Jesus? This verse doesn't say that God sustains the universe. It says he carries it like a friend carrying another friend to God. He's carrying you. Act 
actively, purposefully. He loves you and has a good plan for you. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says this, that God accomplishes all things. You like all these all things verses? According to the counsel of his will. The word translated accomplishes here is an ergo, and it indicates that God works or brings about all things, all things, according to his will. Maybe you've been through a difficult time. Maybe you're in the middle of one right now. But God is with you, providentially at work. Maybe you need eyes of faith this morning, and right now you're just in the middle of pain. Maybe you know someone who's suffering and it's tearing you up right now. You don't know how to help. Maybe you've not allowed your heart to come out of the pain and you're trapped in something from the past that was hurtful. You don't want to see God's providence. Esther's life at this point isn't going according to her plan, but it is going according to God's plan. And this important truth can give us hope during difficult times. It doesn't mean that there aren't scars. But you know what? Our Savior has scars, doesn't he? But he was raised from the dead. He has a plan for your life. He's good. And I prayed for you this week. I prayed for you. I prayed for you. I prayed, God, if there's someone who needs to hear this this week, Lord, would you just speak to their heart Let them know that you're in control. This morning, I want to remind you that you were providentially in this room or online to hear this message this morning. We're going to close in prayer. And and I'm just going to close this time and we're going to enter into a time of the altar being open. I know that you know, if you're not going through a difficult time, people that are, that need to see the hand of God in their life. They're like Esther in this moment where they just don't get it. And so I'm gonna open up the altar. I'm gonna ask you if you would consider like coming to pray for them. We're gonna have prayer counselors down here at the front if you have a request, something you need prayer for. But this is your time to respond. Go ahead and stand with me and I'm gonna pray. The altar's open. Lord, we thank you for this historical account in Esther of your providence. I know there's people in the room right now, Lord, that need to see that. They've been watching a lot of grass grow and they just don't get it. God, I've been there. I, I, it's hard. But I pray, Lord, that everyone in the room would have the eyes of faith this morning, that they would remember the promises in Scripture that you uphold all things. You carry us along. You carry along all things according to the word of your power. Care for us, hard times. So Holy Spirit, we give you free reign in this place to just do what you want. We know that there's power in prayer, God. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name.